from the inside speaking out of the cooler money, speak out, speak truth segment. It's unique reporting and perspectives from those literally and presently on the inside or who have been on the inside of an issue, place, industry, cultural phenomenon, or movement, among other things, from the prison industrial complex and juvenile justice reform to the Black Lives Matter movement and the increase in activity of white supremacist hate groups to corporate and governmental corruption and more, whether through lived experience or witnessing firsthand. This is Cool of Money, Speak Out, Speak Truth, the From the Inside Out Call to Action segment, Cool and Unusual Punishment and Psychological Torture in America's Prisons. I'm your host, Mustafa El Ajala, and also a commentator and reporter for this episode, which is also a tribute to three of my comrades we've lost and countless others along the way. First, Rashid Ajala, also known as Rayshon Fleetwood Woods, my right hand man. He migrated uh, from Austin, Illinois, to uh, up these ways, and you know, he's a humble, studious, sincere, and a fierce and fearless fighter. You know, he stood against some of these injustices that we're speaking upon in this episode, and he could not be broken. He was recently taken away from us as a result of an insulin, over, insulin overdose that was administered by medical staff. And we have another comrade, Yaya Jala, a.k.a. John, quote-unquote, white boy virgin, another right hand, willing to lay all on the line for what he believed. Fierce, loyalty, another fierce fighter, humble, one of the Umar's finest, but was unable to survive the tortures of Wisconsin's psychological death row. And then we have our brother, Timmy, um, Timothy Sidney, who I never got to meet personally, but uh, who left us some remarkable testimony of his fight to survive and fight for the survival of others being tortured in these concentration camps. So the testimony of his we'll share later on in this episode, all freedom fighters. And we uh, honor them and pay tribute to them and those other ones who have fought for themselves and others, and uh, countless others who are not here named, but here and abroad, uh, present and past. So let's begin with a look at some of the numbers. And we're talking about psychological torture in America's prison, and particularly uh, the condition of the mentally ill and where they're winding up. So looking at the numbers between 1950 and 2000 alone, the number of people with serious mental illness living in psychiatric institutions decreased from roughly a half a million to around 50,000. So that's like a thousand percent decrease from a half a million to around 50,000. Mental illness hasn't all but disappeared from society. So where are these members of our society? Where do they go? The answer is in the map. Today, there are nearly 10 times as many people with severe mental illness in prison than in state hospitals. Surprise. That's roughly a thousand percent more. So when we look at the bed uh, to persons ratio, what's considered a minimal for adequate mental health treatment in a society is 50 beds per 100,000 people. And you could do the math in your own state, but in Wisconsin, that will equal to about 2,500 beds being necessary for adequate treatment of the mentally ill. Yet, in 2010, Wisconsin had 558 beds. And I think by 2016, get the number right, by 2016, there were 458 beds. So a 100-bed decrease to a number that was already well below what's considered minimal. In all states failed in this regard. So like I said, you can do the numbers in your own state. So the U.S. Bureau of Justice found that 75% of women in jails and prisons had mental illness and 55% of the men. And so while the overall number of people behind bars slightly decreased in recent years, the number of prisoners 
with mental illness has continued to increase, continue to rise. So we take Rikers Island, for, for an example. In 2010, it recorded like 30% of its population as being mentally ill. In 2014, that number was 40%. In 2017, it was 43%. And back here in Wisconsin, 2010 audit of like three of the state's uh, prisons found between 50 and 70 and 76 percent of his prisoners of those in solitary confinement were mentally ill. And in every county in the United States, which has both a county jail and a county and a county psychiatric facility, there were found to be more seriously mentally ill people incarcerated than hospitalized, stuck with no treatment. And their jail stays are often double, and in some cases more than quadruple, more than quadruple the average stays in jail because they're not being treated, so they have an inability to cope. They have an inability to advocate for themselves in terms of their releases. Uh, there was a class action lawsuit that was found, I mean, that was filed against the Cook County Jail uh, years ago, and it found that, you know, on the regular, they were keeping people incarcerated longer than their release date. They were losing people in the county jail, not being able to find, locate them and find where they are in order to release them. So imagine a person that's mentally ill, that's already having problems communicating, likely not having the proper communication with family and support on the outside to even advocate for themselves. And then in addition to that, they are accumulating more jail infractions as well as charges for that matter. So in many county jails, if you go without infractions and if you have county jail time, then your amount of time in the jail gets, gets reduced. But if you uh, incur infractions, then your stay in the county jail is to the max. So you have uh, the mentally ill that are in these facilities that are staying well beyond, uh, like I say, double in some cases more than quadruple the time of those that don't have mental illness. So. Let's go back for a minute to the numbers in Wisconsin. Wisconsin has more than 9,500, 9,500 of its prison population that are mentally ill. That's more than 40% of the entire prison population. In every male maximum security prison in the state of Wisconsin, with the exception of Dodge Correctional Institution, which is its reception center, more than 50% of the prisoners are mentally ill. At DCI, Dodge, it's like 42%. And in the women's maximum security prison, uh, the Cheetah Correctional Institution. 89% of the women are mentally ill in the state of Wisconsin. 89% with roughly 74% on psychotropic medications. And even at the women's minimum facility prison, uh, Ellsworth, Wisconsin, Union Grove outside of Racine, Racine County, 77% are mentally ill. And we know that these numbers in Wisconsin, I'm pretty sure other states, are an underrepresentation. A fact that was reported on by comrade late Rashida Jalla, may Allah's mercy be upon him, and confirmed by a WCI psychologist, Bradley Borgen was his name. He resigned, the psychologist, Walpon Correctional Institution, where I'm at right now speaking to you. His, the psychologist resigned because of that and also because of the conditions he described as being beyond acceptable, quote-unquote, and, quote-unquote, inhumane the conditions of the prison beyond acceptable, inhumane. And to quote Al-Rashid, quote unquote, about the mental health classifications, it came out that inmates with MH2, and let me interject here, MH2, that's mental health too, one of the more severe uh, 
uh, designations of mental health illness. You have MH2, MH1, MH2A, MH2B, things of that nature. So begin the quote again. About the mental health classifications, it came out that inmates with MH2 are not fit to be in solitary confinement or administrative confinement. So what they did was drop a lot of inmates' classifications down just so they would not have to release them from solitary confinement, end quote. And Dr. Boyvin confirmed this, uh, this statement from receipt. And he confirmed it in two ways. One, after being on medical leave himself, he returned to WCI to find that 13 of, 13 of his patients had had their mental health classifications changed without his knowledge to lesser degrees of mental illness, without proper assessment in his, in his professional opinion. And two, the Wisconsin DOC refuses to classify prisoners with psychopathic and sociopathic, and sociopathic disease as having serious mental illness because so many are diagnosed with it. So those are, those are some of the numbers in, in the state of affairs in the prison system. So whatever the number or the underrepresentation of them, imprisonment, punishment has become the new treatment for the mentally ill under conditions which have been noted to even drive the non-mentally ill insane. So what are those conditions? It's primarily solitary confinement, psychological death row, and it's designed to destroy a person mentally. More than 14 days of which has already been di uh, designated as torture by the UN, a resolution that the United States itself was a signatory to. So if more than 14 days have already been designated by the United Nations. This is the world's opinion, which included, which included the United States, has already been designated as torture. Then why in Wisconsin you have years and even decades being doled out, and even for nonviolent offenses? And this is something I can attest to. More than eight and a half, uh, it was eight years and about five months in one stretch, but altogether more than 15, 16 years easily. Because there was another time I was incarcerated in solitary confinement, uh, six, six, almost seven years, I think. So, but this particular time I'm speaking of, it was from 2000, February 2007 until July 2015. And really, to be frank with you, you can say until April 2018, which has been more than 10 years. Because when I was released to what was supposed to be general population, it was still solitary confinement conditions, which has been defined by the uh, U.S. Justice Department as 22 to 24 hours, anything more than 22 hours of cell confinement. And even when I was released to what was supposed to be general population in Bosco Bill, uh, in the city, in the state of well, correction in the town of Boscoville, the facility used to be called Supermax Correction Institution. It was changed. The name was changed to Wisconsin Secure Program Facility. But the conditions didn't change that much. It's still a lot of cell confinement. And, and to be frank with you, in all the maximum security prisons in the state of Wisconsin, you're likely to be confined in the cell 23 to 24 hours a day if you don't have a job or go to school and there's simply not enough places, uh, not enough jobs available or school seats for that matter to have the entire population, which is in many, in, in, in most places, a thousand people or more, uh, to be uh, enrolled in school or have a job. So the vast majority of the population is in solitary confinement, even in what's supposed to be general population, non-segregated status. And, and, and in those segregated statuses, which is, you know, designated solitary confinement or restrictive housing unit, as they like to call it now, you still have guys that are there for nonviolent offenses. My offense at the time was organizing a work stoppage. 
that was 2006 to 2007, and they uh, they uh, swarmed and uh, threw a lot of us, about 11 of us at the time, in solitary confinement, and that was February, I think, the 10th, 2007. And in order to justify, they try to turn the work stoppage into where we're going to take hostages, we're going to assault staff, when it was actually a document that was typed up that laid out the whole process of how the work stoppage would proceed and specifically underlined and highlighted the fact that under no circumstances was violence to be engaged in. And part of the reason that that was documented that way because we know their game plan. We know that that's how they play. When they want to inflict harm against you. The first one of the first two things they led is uh uh gang affiliation and violence. Because they know those words, it invokes fear, right? It invokes concern. It invokes sympathy on their part. Despite the document itself specifically denouncing such action, that was the allegation made. And look, we took it to court, uh lawsuit was filed, they attempted to settle, we declined the settlement, took it to trial and lost that trial uh, before predominantly, I mean, pretty much with one exception, all-white juror, uh, jury and uh, the U.S. District Court in Madison, Wisconsin. But at any rate, so we wound up doing specifically eight and a half years, roughly, for that particular allegation. There was not one incident of violence, not one person harmed, yet we spent nearly a decade alone for that allegation, eight and a half years, roughly, in solitary confinement. So this is the type of punishment that's being doled out in Wisconsin, even when there's not been one drop of blood shed for a work stoppage that never actually materialized. It only materialized because they locked the prison down. So guys couldn't go to work. But of course, that you know that whole topic and discussion is for another episode. The point being here is that it's not only understood the uh, severe impact that solitary confinement has on prisoners, and particularly the mentally ill, uh, despite that understanding, there is no real effort to change. Now, granted, there was some rule changes that was made, I believe, in 2015 that did uh, somewhat decrease the severity of the time that's been in solitary confinement, but it's far from enough. And even with, you know, a, a decrease... And you still have guys that have been there for years. But even with a decrease in general, uh, a guy that would spend, say, more than a year in segregation for a simple fight. I mean, you have millions in prison that's going to be fist fights, right? So now that same guy may spend 60 days, 120 days. Still far beyond what the United Nations designated as torture because it's understood that the whole purpose of solitary confinement is to deteriorate a person mentally. It's not a physical punishment, it's a mental punishment. And that's certainly not enough for anyone to come out of solitary confinement prepared to re-enter society. So keep in mind, we're still talking about something that exceeds the basics. And I'm talking about, when we're talking about basics, I'm talking about something that even animal rights activists would oppose. Keeping a dog in a cage for 24 hours. They don't even allow that for animals. And when you're in solitary confinement, when they give you that one hour outside of the cell, that's really what it is. You're going to a kennel. It's a fenced-in area, no bigger than a dog kennel. And you're in there by yourself. Now, there's other people, prisoners, in other kennels next to you, but it's still a dog kennel. There's no walk around the park. 
even a dog gets that. So you would have the animal rights, uh, humane society, uh, PETA. Uh, they wouldn't stand for that for animals, right? So uh, let's take a quote from a former DOC secretary. Uh, his name is Rick Ramos. He's a Republican. He was a former uh, prosecutor. He was a former, uh, get the stats right here, former district attorney and sheriff in Dane County and also former federal prosecutor. Uh, he was the DOC secretary from 2007 to 2011. And he left the Wisconsin DOC <laughs> to go to the Colorado DOC. And his performance there and his, his response there was night and day. So the four years, he's the head of the Wisconsin DOC. That same time period, which I began my more than eight-year stretch in solitary confinement, which was 2007, he permitted some of the most atrocious abuses in the Wisconsin Department of Correction, but turned a whole new leaf when he went to the Colorado Department of Correction. And some of these, it came out that some of these positions and, and views he held while the Wisconsin Department of Correction secretary, but for whatever reason, he didn't feel comfortable trying to implement those views he held while in the Wisconsin DOC. And that says, that says, you know, I mean, that speaks volume about what you're up against in terms of administration and politics in the Wisconsin, in the state of Wisconsin, period. And these Wisconsin, in these Wisconsin tracing camps in particular. So to quote him, speaking of the overuse of solitary confinement in the Colorado Department of Corrections, he said, quote unquote, sending people out worse than when they came in. You can't put someone with a mental illness in a 7 by 13 cell for 23 hours a day and let the demons chase them around. He said, so those with severely, so those who were severely mentally ill in the past, that's oftentimes where they ended up, sometimes for years. So he understood this, right, even while heading the Wisconsin Department of Corrections, but made none of the efforts that have been made in the Colorado Department of Corrections, which has included now fewer than 200 prisoners confined 22 hours a day in isolation compared to 1,500 in 2011 when he came there. And part of the reason this stance was taken was because the former executive director of the Colorado Department of Corrections prison system in 2013, and he was well like uh, Clements. Let me see if I can get his full name here. I know his last name was Clements. Hang on a second. Yeah, Tom Clements. Tom Clements. So this former executive director was gunned down on his front doorstep by an inmate that was released directly to the streets from after serving seven years in solitary confinement. So the practice, it was decided that the practice had to be ended for public safety reasons. So when we talk about the impact, it's beyond just the impact on the individual. It's a person right here in this, in this facility. And let me tell you, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not trained, but I've been around, I've been in this prison system over 20 years, 28 years to be exact, the 7th of this month, September 2021. And so I've been around all these different mentalities. And 
I'll leave it to a, a, a psychologist to determine when a person is too far gone, too far gone uh, to be brought back. But I can I can tell, and I believe without a shadow of a doubt, this particular person I'm talking about, he was not one of those people. I mean, he can hold a rational conversation. I mean, you know, he wasn't that far gone, but he was released from Supermax Correction Institution at the time. That was the name of it. A class action that I and another uh, uh, Muslim brother, Amir, uh, Sebas filed that uh, caused a lot of the change in conditions at Supermax, all praise to be to Allah, including the change of the name from Wisconsin, uh, from Supermax Correction Institution to Wisconsin Secure Program Facility. So he was released from there, no treatment, uh, torture, being brutalized, and he's back in prison because being released from solitary confinement, he had a high-profile crime that included the beheading of a woman in Rock County. He was out of his mind at the time it happened. He's now incarcerated. He's on psychotropic medication. Uh, I've spoken to him recently. I mean, this is something, you know, he, he admits the crime. He was not fit to be in society at the time. Not because he hadn't served enough time for the crime that he was incarcerated for then, but because of the psychological torture he endured in the state of Wisconsin. So when we talk about those conditions, I mean, we have guys there, this is something I've witnessed, that will cut themselves and smearing blood on the wall the help that they need, help, right? I've seen guys smear feces, urine, smear themselves on it, I mean, with it. Put 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 feces, uh, you know, this is something I didn't witness myself, but a person that I had conversation with, I dealt with, and others witnessed that he put took the feces and put it into a mohawk on his head. And came out of cell like that. You had guys down there eating feces, cutting themselves, right? Banging their heads into the wall until they passed out. And even right here in the general population, you can see guys walking around with sleeves on. These are medical sleeves to cover up the scars on their arms. And sometimes you can see them without the sleeves, arms full of scars. Some with scars on their necks. Guys jumping off the tier trying to kill themselves or hanging off the tier threatening to kill themselves. It's something that's happening right now, even the general population, because in the general population in the state of Wisconsin, and in some other states I know, I did time in the Virginia Department of Corrections because Wisconsin sent me there, well, really shipped me there, because they was they were infuriated about my fighting stance in the state of Wisconsin. So that was a form of punishment, but it, it wound up being a blessing instead of a curse. But in a lot of maximum security prisons within the United States, it's still solitary confinement in terms of how much time you allow out of the cell. And that makes a difference. And usually, the choir is sort of staff. If you don't have enough staff to fully operate a prison in a way that's constitutionally mandated, which includes a specific amount of out of cell time, which includes uh, a certain amount of showers, in this very facility, it was only one shower allowed, allowed last week. And the week before, there was two showers. So if you don't have enough staff to even operate the prison, in a constitutionally mandated way, then one or two things need to happen. You need to hire enough staff or release enough people so the numbers reduce to amount that the staff are able to manage in a way that the prison fully operates. And going back again here, 
for the state of Wisconsin. In 2006, there was an article I authored. It said, who says Wisconsin doesn't have a death penalty? And it was me reporting from what I described as psychological death row. Uh, some of the conditions of confinement at the time of Green Day Correction Institution, which this is January 2006, well, correction, uh, mid-2006 and later 2007 when the work stoppage, which, which included an effort to uh, uh, take away uh, some of these conditions that included... Uh, the cause of death of John Burge and uh, Yaya Ajala. So he was thrown in solitary confinement for 180 days for merely having a brand new pair of pants. And this is a, this is a circumstance where when you go on a visit, you want to look nice with your family, your friends, for your family, friends, whatever. So a lot of guys would buy a new pair of pants because the ones they usually hand out or, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, potato sack type pants worn out. So guys want to get a new pair of pants. So, you know, that's part of the hustle in the prison system. Those in laundry, you get a new pair of pants for what, uh, uh, box, uh, a pack of coffee or something, or, you know, five dollars, whatever the case may be. So he had a new pair of pants. And that was something that was seen as an offense by the administration. So they threw him in segregation for 180 days. And while there, it's alleged he committed suicide. And it was found that Wisconsin's suicide rate was nearly twice the national average. So it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a form of, it was a de facto death penalty in my perspective. So the national average was like 14 suicides for 100,000 people, prisoners. And the Wisconsin average was about 25 for 100,000. And between 2001 and 2005, there were 28 in the state prison. So you had a report. This is January 2006 report by the Wisconsin Department of Corrections that was authored by the mental health director at the time, Kevin Callis, and a psychology director, Dan Hans. And what they found was that uh, mentally ill prisoners being subject to the conditions of the quote-unquote the box, you know, the solitary confinement, that the officials, prison officials were placing prisoners with mental illnesses in those type of segregated settings at a rate twice that of other prisoners. And to quote uh, Callis, quote-unquote, we recognize that being in a segregated setting can lead to more mental health issues. Yet they continue, this is 2006, that they continue to this day to house those with mental illnesses more than twice as much as those without mental illnesses, right? And so we're talking about 23 hours, 24-hour cell confinement, usually 24 hours. And even, like I say, when you're out the cell in, in, in uh, solitary confinement, you're still in a, in a, in a segregated confinement, a dog kennel, really. A limited communication, sleep deprivation, the lights on 24 hours a day, the loss of property, TV, radio, books, no contact visits, often reduction or denial of food if they feel like you're abusing the food. <laughs> they come with all kinds of ways to justify torture. Uh, lack of uh, 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 deprivation of clothing. You know, you can piss them off and have your clothes and take your clothing taken from you. Uh, in some cases, they would cut the water off. Among other, you know, similar atypical hardships in the prison system. So when you have guys with these type of mental illnesses that already have uh, inability to cope and not receiving the proper treatment, it's no surprise that they're going to deteriorate. Deteriorate. And you also have the same thing happening with guys that come to the uh, solitary confinement with no mental illness. 
I mean, it's designed to break you down mentally. And so when you're surrounded by mental illness, it can be uh, exceedingly uh, depressing and harmful mentally to those that have been diagnosed with no mental illness. And the quote, and this is a quote from Winston Churchill, but it's an adequate quote. We shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. It was something that was quoted in the article I mentioned uh, that was written. All praise be the law. And so when you say buildings that are structured in a way that we don't even allow animals to be treated, then there's no surprise that those same buildings will begin to shape the people in there. So when you have the guy that's released from the Colorado Department of Corrections wind up on the doorstep, literally on the doorstep of the, of the executive director of the Department of Corrections and murder him after seven years of solitary confinement. That's an example of we shaping our buildings and then our buildings shaping us. And when you have the guy here in this system that was released from the Wisconsin Department of Corrections Supermax prison, solitary confinement, and he's found on the streets in Rock County in broad daylight, murdering a woman, beheading her. And he suffered from mental illness that was not being treated, but that was being, that was being aggravated. That's an example of we shaping our buildings and afterwards our buildings shaping us. And then the quote again from the same article in which uh, the book Doom was quoted. The human question is not how many can possibly survive within the system, but what kind of existence is possible for those who do survive. So you have guys that I know even still today, uh, Jihad, Irving Gray, served more than two decades in solitary confinement, where he remains today. Uh, Kamal Damali, my comrade, Radio Morgan, he served more than a decade in solitary confinement and was only released after being diagnosed with severe mental illness and even having hallucinations, which he still suffers from today, something that was not the case when he entered solitary confinement. So when they saw him deteriorating, they still did not they still did not release him from solitary confinement. I mean, it was it was until he was gone, you know, imagining things crawling on him, speaking to himself. Only then. So how can it not be that that was not the intent? And that's a statement law called deliberate indifference. So even if it's not your intent, if you see it happening and you deliberately are indifferent to it. It's almost equivalent to an intent that it be that it happened. So I can name I can name many others. Uhuru, uh, uh, Green, Norman Green, more than decades, more than two decades in solitary confinement. McKinley Bay, decades in solitary confinement. Now housed in the Colorado Department of Correction. Uh, Abdullahi, Amigo X, more than a decade in solitary confinement. Six Montel Horton. More than a decade in solitary confinement. Now, to my knowledge, last uh, 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 being held in the Florida Department of Correction. He was also a person that was sent out of state. The Vegas, uh, Stephon Stewart, decades in solitary confinement. Bruce Jones Bay, Ghazi, Jamie Vest Bay. I mean, and countless others. And in many, what Wisconsin would do, because if they couldn't break you here, then they would send you out of state, send you to the federal system, send you to Colorado send you to Virginia, in my case, Florida, uh, send you all over the country where you have no one, nobody, and they would not even send you property. So if you go out there and you don't have money and you don't know anyone, I mean, what do you do to survive? 
if you're fortunate, you're able, you know what I'm saying, to 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 uh, uh, get the stuff you need, you know, to regroup. But many are not that fortunate. So they, they, they take you from one place where they were unable to break you and send you to another place and hope that they're able to break you. Or hope you get out there in that system and you have to do things in order to survive that will make you enable level coming of being released from prison. And so these conditions of confinement, again, they mirror, the, the general population mirrors those conditions when you're in maximum security prison system. Going back to some of the results of those conditions, the impact of those conditions, those scars that we're seeing on guys here are testaments to the inhumanity. And this is why I would like to quote uh, the testimony of uh, Comrade Timothy Sidney, the late Timothy Sidney. This is his, this is some of his last words, publicly stated, and I quote, this was May 2019. I write in regard to mental health, my mental health. I've been incarcerated a little over seven years and I'm worse before coming here. I had not one scar on my body. Now my body will tell you seven years worth of cruel, unusual acts and scars. As I write you this letter, I'm currently housed in War Pond Segregation Unit. I'm subject to all type of cruelty, age trades, impartial hearing, excessive force, dirty cell guards, no mental health treatment for my PTSD. So I cut a lot for grounding. Correctional officers here in the SEG building are putting razor blades, unprescribed pills in my cells, even in my observation cell before being placed on suicide watch. Some people want away. Some people want lawsuits. Some want revenge, but I just want help. Treatment, because I go home soon, and I don't want to go home like this. So please reach out, because I'm to the point of no return. I was housed instead from 2012 to 2015 for self-harm. The charges was always either misuse of medication or disfigurement. All I ask is that you reach, because I need to be touched. End quote. This was his testimony, May 2019, shortly before being shortly before being released from War Pond. He was found dead in Milwaukee on November the 16th, 2019. And he's speaking about the scars of cutting on himself. And then you have, I would like to uh, give a little bit of a quote, paraphrasing some of it, uh, from a jailer. This is Jackson, Mississippi, uh, which is Hines County, the Hines County Jail, a jailer from the Hines County Jail. And he's speaking upon a mentally ill prisoner there in the jail. And he said, the guy tore up a padded cell that's indestructible, and he ate the cover of the padded cell. We took his clothes and gave him a paper suit to wear, and he ate that. We then fed him food in a styrofoam container. He ate that. We had his stomach pumped six times, and he's been operated on twice. So the question's not been asked why, right? So you, for him to be in a padded cell, that tells me he's in solitary confinement, but for those out there that don't know, they will place a person in a padded cell when they're being harmed, they're, they're believed to cause harm to themselves or, or others. And in some cases, they do it out of retaliation, Abuse, anger. So they would throw a guy in a suicide cell for no other reason than you pissed him off. But at any rate, it's not psychological treatment there. 
So it's 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 it's, it's further it's further deterioration. Punishment for crime is loss of liberty, not humanity, and certainly not a person's sanity. Any condition that drives a person insane is per se inhumane and constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. And this is some of the testimony of it. And it's no surprise that nearly half the people executed between 2000 and 2015 have been diagnosed with mental health issues or substance abuse disorder. Mental health disorder or substance abuse disorder. And right now, as I speak, we're on lockdown in the Walpon Correction Institution. We're on lockdown in the Walpon Correction Institution because it's alleged that a prisoner assaulted a staff at and a nurse at the uh, a health services unit, HSU, the medical unit. And we know by the stats in, in this particular facility, there's more than 50% chance that he suffered from a mental illness because more than 50% of this population is mentally ill. So let's get into, as we begin to conclude this episode, the call to action in terms of what can be done. One reason that you have this number of people suffering from mental illness in the prison system is because of the cost. So you already, and, and when we talk about most prisons in, in, in the Wisconsin Department of Correction in particular, already are unable to operate the prison in a way that it should be operated in terms of full operations, you know, the, the, the type of programs, the type of recreation, even basic stuff such as shower, such as showers, as it should be operated, then there's no question the ability to properly treat and house the mentally ill is deficient. So a lawsuit was filed in the women's prison, the Cheetah Correction Institution. Uh, I think it was Doyle versus Flynn, or Flynn versus Doyle. Flynn versus Doyle was the name of the lawsuit. Doyle at the time was the Attorney General, Jim Doyle. And so the lawsuit was settled, and there also, there also was a U.S. Justice Department report which uh, kind of transformed the prison. But that construction, that reconstruction of the prison into a, uh, they made an annex, the women's, uh, Wisconsin Women's Resource Center that was built. There was already a, a general Wisconsin Resource Center in Winnebago, Wisconsin. That's only one facility. <laughs> Far from enough for the entire prison population. So they built the Wisconsin's Women's Resource Center and annexed it to, to Cheetah Correctional Institution. The construction cost was like, total was, uh, Looking at the number right now, a little over $25 million. So, there lies the problem and really the solution. Because there's a constitutional right for the non mentally ill as well as the mentally ill not to be housed in the same facility and for the mentally ill to be housed in proper treatment facilities. So if the general populations in the Wisconsin DOC or other prisons, throughout the state of Wisconsin for that matter, because this problem is just not something that's going on in Wisconsin. This is indicative of the entire United States prison system. So this is one method to get the prisoners that need the proper treatment, that treatment, and to get those prisoners that are not yet mentally ill out of circumstances that can potentially drive them mentally ill. And that is the law, which mandates 
that that to happen. It also mandates that guys are not kept or women for that matter in 20, 22, 23, 24-hour cell confinement. So if you don't have the efficient number of staff or can't afford to have the efficient number of staff, then you have to release the prisoners from those conditions or enough of the prisoners, particularly prisoners that are already parole eligible, such as myself and many others. I've been parole eligible since 2008. My last parole hearing, I was told, you have served enough time for your crime. You've completed all your program needs. Your institutional adjustment has been great. Haven't had a major charge since 2014. And that really was a major charge from getting that another time. Your parole plan is magnificent. You know, the amount of support from the community, including the law office, that has made it clear they will be arranging an interview for hire at the earliest possible convenience. Yet, the parole was still denied because they said, well, we still want to see you at a lower custody level. When I was sent to Virginia, I was on my way to a minimum custody level. When I was brought back to Wisconsin, I was immediately placed back in max. So my custody level, I had no control over it when all of the criteria shows that no way should I be in a maximum security facility, including receiving a seven-month deferral from the parole board, and before that, a nine-month deferral. So even though so even though the state of Wisconsin is not equipped to operate prisons, the prisons as they should be operated, in part due to let them tell it understaffing, and, and, and let that and, and let them tell it. The reason that is because of the, of the uh, you know the amount of the prison population. Yet they're still refusing to release people that should be released from the prison population. Many that are parole eligible, and many other nonviolent offenders, and many others that are only here because they were revoked. No new crime. For whatever reason, the parole officer revoked them. And I think those numbers combined is about half of the prison population, which prior to 2000, the entire prison population in Wisconsin was under 10,000 people. After 2000, it skyrockets over 20,000 people. And, and as I just stated, half of those are people that shouldn't even be here. So if the prison was operating at the capacity it should be, we wouldn't have an alleged staff shortage problem. We wouldn't have prisons that couldn't fully operate, and we wouldn't have prisons that had to use solitary confinement cells as really general population housing. That leads to some of the impact we've already spoken upon in this episode. So as cases on the books, uh, DeMallory versus Cullen, a Seventh Circuit case, 1998, Gates versus Cook, Fifth Circuit case, 2004, uh, Thaddeus X versus Blatter, Sixth Circuit case, 1999, and many others that make it clear the non-mentally ill and mentally ill should not only not be housed together, including the case, the class action I spoke upon, me and uh, Amir Shabazz that filed in, uh, in the early 2000s, and that's Jonesville versus Birds. Not only should the mentally ill, Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin District Court, Wisconsin 2001, the Jonesville versus Birds case, but not only should the mentally ill and the non-mentally ill not be housed together, but the non-mentally ill should be housed in proper treatment facilities. And when you place a prisoner who's non-mentally ill in a prison that's more than 50% of the population consists of mentally ill people, you have really placed that prisoner in a mental health, in a mental, in a mental institution. So if I'm in this prison here, I'm not mentally ill, but more than 50% of the prison is mentally ill. I don't care what you call it. It's a mental institution. 
And before a person can be placed in a mental institution, there's due process for that. That's just like if you were taken off the street. To put, you listening to me on this podcast right now. If you were taken off the street and just thrown in a mental institution just because they needed enough space in society, there wasn't enough jobs, whatever the case may be. But your condition is not such that you cannot function in a regular society. That would violate your 14th Amendment right to due process. That's Jones versus Vitae, a U.S. Supreme Court case. People can just not be thrown in mental institutions. And for prisoners that are non-mentally ill, that is what has happened in the prison system. So there's two methods of attack, constitutionally and legally. One, that the prisoners that suffer from mental illness are in facilities that are not treating them, treatment that they have a constitutional right to, and in fact, conditions that are in fact torturing them. 23 to 25 of cell confinement and other abuses mentioned earlier in this episode. And two, those that are not mentally ill have a right not to be housed with the mentally ill. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a benefit and impact for both. And the state will be forced to do one or two things. Either release people or build the proper treatment facilities necessary for the mentally ill to be properly treated and housed. And the cost in most cases to do that are prohibitive. That means the state cannot afford to do it. So they're going to either have to release people, build new facilities, or both. And if you release the amount of people that should be released, in my opinion, from the state of Wisconsin to the numbers that meet capacity, then a lot of these problems will solve themselves. One, the cost will be reduced. If you're housing half the people that you're currently housing, then you're not going to have that same amount of cost. One point, I believe the last cost is $1.5 billion a year just on the prison system, more than on the University of Wisconsin higher education system. If you spent the same amount of money on higher education in the state of Wisconsin than you did on the prison system, not only would you aid and truly rehabilitate the person leaving prison or maybe not even coming to prison at all, you would benefit society. That's money you could be paying that you, that's really an investment. And, and this is another quote which he got from a book. The book was called Equip to Lead. This is my comrade Rashid Ajala. But this quote he gave me is stuck with me. And that is this. If you want to invest in, uh, if you want a year of profit or return, invest in crop. If you want 10 years of profit or return, I'm paraphrasing it. Uh, no. If you want a year of return of profit, grow crops, right? You get your annual harvest out of the crops. If you want 10 years of return, grow trees, you know, fruit trees, apple, whatever. But if you want 100 years of return, grow people. So you have all these subsidies for the farmers to invest in the farming. Crops are needed, no doubt about it. But what about the investment in people? So if the same investment in prison were investing in people in the higher education, not only would the person be better, but the state would be better. Because now you have somebody that can contribute to society, that can be a part of the economy in, in, in a social condition, period. So that is the call to action in part. For those that are listening, that know someone in prison, that are 
or in any way associated with a non-profit legal organization, then this is a rallying cry to attack the conditions of confinement in this state and other states on those two bases. One, it's unconstitutional to house the mentally ill under these conditions, and it's unconstitutional to house the non-mentally ill under these conditions for the reasons stated legally. And also, because these conditions themselves are unconstitutional when you have 23 to 24 hour cell confinement in conditions that are worse than those allowed and permitted for animals. So the call to action is support this podcast, support uh, FFUP, to which uh, Timothy Sidney uh, left the testimony. FFUP is formed for understanding prisons. And the founder is Peg Swan, and the, uh, the site is prisonforum.org. Uh, Peg Swan, email address, email address is pgswan3 at aol.com. And she's foremost in this fight with regards to the mentally ill and mental health conditions in prison. Uh, and, you know, you can see her own story why she's so passionate about this fight. And we were in solitary confinement in the Supermax prison system when she and others reached out to us in rural, right, Wisconsin. And uh, one of the places we least expect to get support, but it was there. And it was and it was eye-opening. You never know where your support is going to come from. These are some of my comrades today. And Peg is, a, is an older lady. She's in her 70s and a fierce fighter. And her husband, Ron uh, Sillinger, same thing. And, you know, they're going through hardships and triumphs at this time as well, uh, particularly the hardships. So... Listen, support FFUP, support other nonprofits that, invo- that are involved in this fight, uh, support the Treatment Advocacy Center, uh, and support this podcast so we can continue to give voice to what's happening inside and share it. You know, share this podcast, spread the word, support other nonprofits, start your own nonprofit, reach out to someone inside, speak out about mental illness uh, with your friends, uh, family, and how it's being dealt with. You know, call a family member or a friend in distress or known to suffer from mental illness. Uh, doing nothing is not an option. And I'd also like to uh, definitely give recognition and tribute uh, to some of the sources of this information, which includes the treatmentadvocacycenter.org or the Guardian, a uh, uh, March 2018 article, or WisconsinWatch.org, uh, FFUP again, uh, the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism. I mean, shout out to the uh, and, comm- and commendation to the brave investigative journalists uh, D. Hall and Alexandra Ariega, who did this report, and uh, which I got the quote from my comrade Rashid. Of course, you know, he spoke to me directly, Rashid Ajala, uh, Rayshawn Woods, and also uh, Dr. Borgen. That was their report uh, from the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, D. Hall and Alexandra Ariega. They gave me a lot of that information. And also uh, Ben Turk, uh, Peg Swan again, and others. Uh, applause to them. And... Uh, so listen, reach out, you know, be a, be a part of it, share this information, do your own research, spread the word, tweet, uh, you know, uh, email, Facebook, whatever. But get the word out what's happening in here in the Wisconsin prison system and in, in the prison systems throughout the United States and do your own little part. And so with 300 million people, just do your own little part. Hopefully supporting some of the organizations I just mentioned, and again, particularly this podcast in all kinds of ways, and particularly if you're from the legal community. You know, reach out, because this is an issue that has to be attacked legally. At least that's one of the forefronts, not the only one, not the sole one, not the only one we should rely on, but it's one of them. 
This is Cooler Money. Speak out, speak truth. Reach out, speak out.